Hey, everybody, I want to welcome you again to the Before You Quit podcast, where we're going to bring courage and perspective when serving gets hard. And man, does it get hard sometimes. That is why we do what we do on these podcast episodes. My name is Mitch Schultz, and I am your host. I'm also the director of ministry called Fruitful Vine Ministry. Uh, Hey, this is a first for me. I'm actually sitting recording this on the side of our lake. We have a lake house, and there is about 60 yards or so between our house and the lake. And in between that, there is core property. And uh, so as I'm sitting here, occasionally I can see a fish jumping and there are birds chirping. So if you hear any of those noise, it will just simply reinforce the, uh, the atmosphere, uh, the sense that that's where I'm at. Uh, if you hear me screaming, it's because a wild hog is chasing after me and I'm trying to get away from him. There's actually wild hogs that do uh, frequent our neighborhood here. Uh, you can walk out in the morning and see ground turned over. Sometimes they will get into people's yards and turn up uh, good lush grass, uh, but in most cases it is pine needles and dirt. Uh, so that that is the setting, and I can't guarantee that the whole podcast will be recorded there because it's getting hot. <laughs> I probably will pause and resume recording back in my office. Uh, there's something else that's a first with this, and, and probably something I won't do too often, although I've thought about it. This is uh, uh, going to be a conversation that I'm having with no one else participating with me. Uh, This is a monologue with Mitch. This is Mitch musing over the state of the church and the state of the gospel in the church. And uh, a big reason for this, a a big part of my desire is um, uh, comes out of a burden that to this point, at least, we are uh, seeing that um, there's a good number of people not going back to church. And I know there's valid medical reasons for that. But um, Barna Research recently did a survey and found out that one-third of, of church, regular churchgoers are, are not going back, and I think a portion of that survey also indicated that they are not planning on going back. And uh, I'm going to go on a huge limb here. Uh, now, metaphorically, I know I described myself being out near in the woods, so I'm not up in a tree, but just metaphorically, I'm going to go out on a limb. And, uh, and I'm going to argue uh, this point through this conversation with you, and, and it's this. Uh, maybe this is my presupposition, and then this talk that I'm going to have with you is my attempt to uh, try to, to reinforce that or, or to prove that, if that is something that can be proved. Uh, and that is that churches where the Bible has been regularly taught pro, uh, pre-COVID uh, are the churches that will continue to do well, will rebound well. And And when I talk about churches that are uh, committed to the gospel, I mean churches that uh, where the pastor, the leadership is committed to expository preaching, uh, Christ-centered preaching, gospel-driven preaching, uh, those are the churches that will recover better. And, I, and I'm already observing that in the network of pastors that I know. Uh, these are churches, I believe, where folks were enthusiastic before COVID. They really missed church during COVID, and they lived in a vacuum. They, they sensed a longing. They longed to be back in fellowship. They longed to uh, hear good biblical preaching again from God's word. They longed to uh, take part in the Lord's Supper with other believers, and not having that opportunity has been, uh, there's been a hunger for that again. And, um, and, and so they're enthusiastic to get back to that, to hear, again, the dynamic preaching from their pastor, to be in fellowship, to break bread with others. These are the churches who I believe are doing well. Now, the churches that are not doing well, <laughs> I argue, uh, who are the ones who before COVID were made up of non-enthusiastic people. And so when COVID hit and their church was shut, they did not miss church that much because there was not that much to miss. Uh, perhaps they loved the worship, they were entertained, they loved the entertaining nature and personality of the pastor. Uh, but during COVID, there wasn't a whole lot that drew them to keep in touch with their church because those things that maybe kept them there were uh, maybe stage uh, presentation, music, that sort of thing. And to only have the preacher being streamed where he's not committed to the gospel. Uh, I think these people sort of short of of what they really uh, innately maybe uh, know that they need. And uh, research research showed early on that as the weeks went by, 
the viewership of online sermons was diminished significantly. I know there are certainly exceptions to that, but for the most part, uh, that was not the case. In fact, pastors that I know locally, they, they notice that. I mean, you can see the number of people viewing and, uh, you know, the, the drop-off during the service as well as the week-to-week, the drop-off and percentage of people in their church who were listening. Uh, so once these churches resumed again, uh, there, was, there was not loss of enthusiasm to recapture because there wasn't much there to begin with. So it's been easier just to stay home, and people have gotten very comfortable and I know having talked to a good number of pastors recently, that's a burden to them. It's a real, real concern to them. Um, let, let me say this, and then I'll get back to this point. There's a, a particular preacher that I listen to several times a week, and I've noticed how people's view of him has changed a lot in the 30, 40, actually 50 years that he's been a pastor. Uh, yet he's not changed, and I know that because I've been tracking him. I've been listening to him a lot, and uh, in his early years, he was viewed as mainstream. He was looked to as an example of someone uh, committed to the gospel, committed to expository preaching, uh, not showy, not talking much about himself. But now, interestingly, he's viewed because of these very disciplines as radical, as legalistic, and as uh, even judgmental. Uh, in fact, someone told me that recently about this particular pastor, and I, I responded this way. I said, wait, if you listen to him regularly— uh, the message that he gives, which is the gospel, is freeing. It's non-judgmental. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's the kind of preaching that reminds you that uh, uh, you're a sinner and you have a Savior who has died for your sins and he is forgiven. You are a forgiven sinner. Uh, and because he, he regularly preaches the gospel, uh, it's the most freeing thing in the world to hear. Yes, he speaks about sin. Uh, he speaks against sin, but he always points to the Savior. For him, and as it ought to be for all pastors committed to the gospel, the Bible is about Jesus. It's not about us. Uh, And again, yes, he does speak against sin quite strongly, actually, but not to judge, but to convict, uh, to see the word convict, to point people to the Savior who is the hero of our story. Uh, We are not the hero of our story. Jesus is. I mean, you know the difference if you've uh, looked into this or studied this between, uh, between exegesis and eisegesis. Eisegesis is reading yourself into the text. Exegesis is reading out of the text. And uh, someone that I listen to regularly, Chris Roseborough from Fighting for the Faith, refers to the kind of preaching today as narcissus. Uh, so it is reading yourself into the text to uh, make yourself feel good. It's narcissistic preaching. Um, but again, if you listen to this preacher regularly, you'll, and if you listen to a preacher who's committed to the gospel, you are going to find yourself sighing with, with relief. You, you will go to church and leave and say, oh, I needed to hear that because I'm a sinner and I messed up this week and I need to be reminded that uh, there is hope and I don't have to do this and that and work harder and, and uh, you know, participate with him in, my, in, in sanctification uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, the, that kind of preaching tells us that the explanation for my problems and the problems in the world is sin. Uh, and, but that is good. That's the law. That is law and grace or law and gospel preaching. I need to know why I am the way I am and prone to do what I do. Um, I need to know why the world is in the state that it's in. Um, if I have a pain in my side and it's killing me and I go to the doctor and he diagnoses what the cause is, I'm relieved. I need him to tell me what the problem is. Can you imagine going to a doctor and he talks about everything else, but he just won't talk about the one thing that is the only thing that has brought me there and that concerns me. And we do the same thing when we ignore the gospel. Uh, The gospel, first of all, diagnoses the problem and then happily points me to the solution. We call that law and gospel. Okay, here's what's going to happen in my monologue. I'm going to get really thirsty because I'm doing all the talking, so occasionally you will hear a little swig like that, and that's me sipping a drink of water. But I need an explanation for why this world is the way it is and why people are acting and behaving the way they are, Because, and that is because that we and they are sinners. And that's the best news ever to hear. We need to be told that we're sinners. We need the word of God to convict us that we're we're aware of our depravity and the state of our heart and that we can do nothing about it. 
but Jesus did everything about it so that we can be set free. That's not legalism. That's not judgmental. It's good news. It's the goodness of the gospel. It's the good news of the gospel. The gospel simply means the good news. So I'm urging us post-COVID to return to the gospel of Jesus. Uh, Pastor, if you've not been doing that, come back to that. And church leaders, if your pastor's not doing that, urge him to do that because that is his responsibility to return to expository preaching that is about Jesus, not us. Uh, gospel preaching will have you, the pastor, do three things. You'll talk about why the Bible, what the Bi- who the Bible is really all about. And then secondly, you're going to explain the problem. And then finally, you will point to the solution to that problem. So three things good preaching should do, and we'll come back to that a little later. Uh, who is the Bible really about? What is the problem? And what is the solution to the problem? And every text, every message ought to have those three components. And you'll do that in every, every sermon. Again, I'll come back to that in just a few moments. Um, I'm going to take another risk here um, and pick a little bit on my own denomination because uh, I am worried about us as much as I'm worried about other evangelical groups. I'm worried about the church. I'm worried about me. I'm worried about my own tendencies. <laughs> Uh, so this is not picking on, on any group or any individual uh, at all, uh, but just reminding all of us to what it means to come back to the gospel. Um, but, so I might, I might appear stronger than I really mean to be in, in this, and I hope it's challenging for those in my, in my denomination, and those of you who know me know what that is. If not, write, send me a, a text or an email, and I'll tell you. Uh, but I'm worried about us because we've gone away from the centrality of Christ in our preaching and in our emphasis. Uh, We've allowed a number of things to distract us from the main message. How do I know that? Well, because I've been doing this for 34 years in this particular uh, movement, and I've been watching and listening and doing a lot of reading about us in the last decade or so. And uh, there's a drift. There's a drift taking place, and and that worries me. Uh, It worries me, too, that few see it, and it worries me that the few who do see it... uh, don't know what to do about it or perhaps are uh, too uh, nervous to raise questions about some of the theological things. Like us, uh, there are other denominations that consider themselves a big tent, and uh, and we boast about having a big tent as a denomination. And what that means is we have the capacity to take in a variance of, of different views and beliefs and backgrounds and even sometimes opposing views of things. And we often justify it by suggesting that these are non-essential issues or not core doctrinal issues. And, um, and the pink, big tent, I see, has a lot of doors. And in the past decade or so, various teachers and leaders have infiltrated or come into this tent, or maybe they've been invited in. They've walked unnoticed into our big tent. And what is troubling to me is how our denominational leaders and training institutions are now leading us in in more confusing and distracting directions because we are a big tent. And uh, if you are noticing that it's affecting our message and impacting severely even our missiology, how we do missions, how we do evangelism, and I'm going to get to that also in a few minutes. And, and again, let me interrupt here before it sounds like I'm being harsh. Um, I tend to use a lot of hyperbole. I will stretch things a little bit, and uh, hopefully you'll understand that my heart uh, loves the church and even my denomination. And uh, so I may be making an extreme point to just remind us that we should never get away from the centrality of the gospel. Uh, before I highlight, I'm going to actually be talking about three things that I'm concerned about. Um, and I want to take, a first of all, a step back and and I think this will be helpful to all of us to, to just be reminded of what the gospel really is. And I do that so that we have a baseline. I don't think we can talk about the gospel enough or too much. Um, I'm, I'm of the view in my preaching and the kind of preaching I like where the gospel is mentioned every single sermon because I think it is what the, what the scriptures is about. And, um, and you can see if your church, your pastor, or even your denomination is still committed to this, or if they too have slowly drifted away from it. Uh, so here, here's the gospel in a nutshell. First of all, here's the gospel. God is holy, and being holy, he is just. 
He's not only just, he's also gracious and compassionate. It's summed up in Psalm 116, verse 5 for us, where we find that God is, uh, the, the psalmist says, gracious is the Lord, righteous, our God is merciful. So the Lord, Yahweh, is righteous, but he's also merciful. He is righteous and he is merciful. We are not. We know that. Again, it's part of the law part of the gospel. It explains the problem. Since Adam, all men are born under sin. They're born sinful. They are also born, according to Ephesians 2, under the wrath of God. And as a righteous God, he must punish sin. He is a just God. It is part of his character. He is holy. He is just. As merciful, he chooses to punish sin in a way that offers us salvation and rescue. And, you know, of course, in the Old Testament, and I get, I, I get so refreshed when a pastor just, again, covers what the sacrificial system is all about, the substitutionary uh, atonement, the, the substitutionary lamb, a lamb in our place. We should have died. Instead, God said, okay, you can kill a lamb and that will be in place of you. All of that is a type and shadow of Christ who, when he came, did so and he lived a perfect life of obedience to God. And when he died, he died as a perfect human being, perfectly God, perfectly human. And he took our place on the cross. He took on himself the punishment we deserve. That is the gospel. And I bet as you're hearing that, as, as, as has, happens with me, it, it is, it's cleansing, it's freeing, it's beautiful to hear that and to be reminded. Because here's what happened at the cross. At the cross, and every time I share the gospel, and I preach, every time I preach, I, I will use this line. I'm committed to do this. At the cross, a trade took place. We gave him our sin. He gave us his righteousness. We gave him our sin. He gave us his righteousness. This way, God's holiness and justice were not compromised. God's anger and wrath towards sin was satisfied in the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. And this is the message, the gospel, that doesn't only save us, but also grows us. And uh, as, a remind, as I remind myself daily, I'm a forgiven sinner. Uh, and I, I find myself growing in my understanding of the gospel. And as an out outcome of that, as I preach the gospel to myself daily, I find myself growing in knowledge of God and growing deeper in my understanding of what Jesus did for me on the cross. And there's a transforming effect of that. Uh, we are transformed into the likeness of Jesus. So good biblical, and, and of course, the, it's the response to that by faith uh, that, um, that, that brings about this exchange. Uh, through repentance, through the confession of sin and the receiving of pardon and the assurance of that pardon that what Christ did on the cross was sufficient. It was enough to, uh, to satisfy uh, the, we do not have to pay for the penalty of our sinfulness. So good biblical gospel preaching always reminds us that we are sinners who have been forgiven. Uh, or if we haven't yet been forgiven, every good sermon will remind us that this offer is available to you. Uh, no one should ever hear a sermon without hearing the gospel. Uh, and I would venture that in every church service, there is someone there who needs to be reminded of the gospel, but who also needs to know that they are still under God's wrath and they need to be reminded of what Christ has done and then the ultimate horrible outcome if they reject Christ. That is the gospel. And that's not hard to do. Why? Because every story, every passage in scripture is about Jesus and what he came to do for us. Good biblical gospel preaching is about Jesus, not us. And when preaching is done to just encourage you, to help you live a more courageous life, to battle your battles, Jesus is your life coach. Uh, he's there to help you do better. Um, that's falling short. Uh, and so much of the preaching that I hear presents Jesus in this way. He's our, he's our, our, our life coach. He's not presented as our, as our savior. Uh, and that's where the Bible becomes about you. You become the horror, the, the hero, the horror, the hero of your story, uh, of the story. If if you uh, can apply these principles, and uh, and I feel a weight of burden whenever I hear this kind of preaching. It tells me that I should, I must, I can, I have to. Uh, but to be honest with you, I fail to. I always do. I can never live up to the demand that the pastor puts on me when I am the hero of the story. Um, I fail every day. I fail daily. 
and I know that Jesus is not my life coach cheering me on, walking alongside me, saying, Mitch, you can do better, you can do better. No, he's my savior. Uh, and the Bible, the law, reminds me that I cannot. I try, but I fail. So let's talk about Jesus. He pleased God. This is the gospel. He pleased God. I cannot. He lived a perfect life. I cannot. I lean on his success because I am a constant failure. Uh, so, Pastor, talk about Jesus, not me. And please don't talk about your life. Talk about the life of Jesus. You're, you are, I am, a poor example of how I should do it. Um, you're, you're just like me. Talk, talk about Jesus. Don't urge people to tell their story when they witness their faith. Uh, no one has ever come to Jesus by hearing my story. I'm a bad example of what it means to be a Christian. But I, good preaching, good evangelism is telling the story about Jesus, who he is, why he came, and what he did for us. So let me get back to those three fundamental questions about the Bible. Who is the Bible really all about? It's about Jesus from start to finish. It's about Jesus. You know the story of Jesus walking with the two men on the road to Emmaus and when he finally opened their eyes and they realized who he was, what did he do? He went and explained how all the prophets and the teachings in the scripture were about him, that he was the full, everything from the beginning to the end was about Jesus. Uh, who is the Bible about? It's about Jesus. What is the problem? The problem is sin. Me, you, we are the problem. What is the solution to this problem? There's only one, the work of Jesus on the cross. And let me say it again. Every sermon should emphasize these three things. Who is the Bible about? What is the problem? What is the rescue? What is the answer to this problem? You will, you should assume, um, I should assume when I preach that there are unbelievers in my church, probably every week. Uh, they might have been in your church for years, but if they're not hearing the gospel, there's a very good chance that they are not believers. Remind them of the gospel. You'll have struggling Christians in your church every week. Remind them of the gospel. So let me get back to a conversation with my own tribe here. I'm, I'm, I'm one of you. We're having coffee together, and I'm really burdened for you, and I'm burdened with you because I know you care. Um, I hear in your voice, uh, I'm burdened for you because I don't think you know what is really happening to you. And I'm speak, kind of embodying the tribe or the denomination into uh, kind of characterized into a person. Uh, I'm, I'm burdened because some of you are worried, but too afraid to speak up for fear it might impact your work. Uh, you don't like to ruffle feathers. You're not confrontational. You don't like conflict. So these things are hard. I, I kind of, I'm a strange breed. I kind of like conflict or I, I'm, I'm one of those where I will speak up if I think something's not right. Uh, someone told me I have kind of a prophetic uh, not prophetic in, the, in that sense, but uh, prophetic in the sense of being able, to, feeling free to call things out. Um, uh, sometimes I'll feel bad about it, but uh, I'm more likely to call something out and speak up about things. And uh, so that, again, that's just, that, that's why I'm doing this particular podcast. Um, but I'll, I'll leave this up to you what to do with it and um, love for you to interact with me. But you might be asking, Mitch, what's the issue? Come on, we preach Jesus, we love Jesus, we talk about how people need Jesus, we are, we are missional. I mean, come on, it's our middle name. I gave away there a little bit who our denomination is. And as I, I, address, I address here what I think is fundamentally, fundamentally wrong, or maybe, maybe more what the pressures are, let me remind you what Paul warned his young son Timothy about in in 2 Timothy chapter 4, let me pull this up here on my computer, uh, beginning in verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, and I take that to mean also when it's popular or not popular, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching, be a loving pastor, in other words, love your people enough to rebuke and to uh, reprove and exhort. And then he says this in verse three, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And as for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering, 
do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Being sober-minded means keep your mind alert to what's happening. Uh, take what comes with it. If you have to speak out against error and heresy and speak truth, you're going to have to endure suffering. That's the work of an evangelist. That is fulfilling your ministry. In other words, it's doing the job that you've been appointed to do. Uh, I am fascinated with this because I think a lot of times, based on this passage, that uh, deception, when it does come, it's going to be really close to home. It's going to be so subtle. It's going to be right next to you. It's not going to be the Mormon, the Jehovah Witness. It's going to be in the in the church that you're in. And and dece- I mean, deception is not deception unless it is luring people away unknowingly, pulling them away from the truth. And pastor, if you're not regularly preaching the gospel and preaching expository sermons, preaching the text, uh, you will miss it. Uh, gospel preaching spots it right away. No gospel preaching will blindside you and people will be easily drawn away. Um, so as part of my musing here, um, and maybe this is just me processing where I'm at, I, I want to talk about three movements that are creeping into the church. Um, and this is very subjective. This is my observation it's, it's where I've been landing on my concern. It's been what I've been reading and studying and, and observing and, and writing about. Um, and it's worrying me. It's worrying some others that I'm close to. It's captured their hearts. Um, and, and the concern is that um, these movements are, are things that are being latched onto by people that we have looked up to and we're looking to for leadership. Uh, the first one is this, and I try to come up with with uh, categories that uh, that make sense, but I'll have to sort of uh, uh, expand on it a little bit. But the first one is the modern prophets and heavily prophetic reliance. In other words, we're we're relying on certain people to to lead us in some new uh, kind of emphasis, like a fresh word or a new emphasis on a on a familiar doctrine. And the, this prophetic movement or our reliance on, on the prophetic, I, I think is undermining, or not think, it is undermining the sufficiency of scripture. And what I note here is when you drift away from sola scriptura, scripture alone, when you glide away from the authority of the word of God as your rule of life and practice, something else is gonna fill that void. So pastor, if you're not preaching regularly the word of God, your people are gonna hear things elsewhere and it's going to itch their ears it's going to sound good because they've not been hearing the gospel preached they've not been hearing the word of god preached regularly um, if you're not hearing the word of god preached you'll need to hear the word of god somehow and in some way and if scripture's not enough and you are eager for some deeper longing you're going to go somewhere to hear that voice and no wonder people who are dissatisfied with the word alone will enthusiastically latch on to some new teaching or some new message. Um, however, I, I, and this is my point, I don't believe that you have to be a cessationist to be concerned uh, when there is what I call a systemic assumption that God will reveal his will on certain matters directly to you or, or preferably to you through a recognized and trusted spiritual leaders. And I use the word systemic because this is becoming mainstream. We're, we're latching on to people and their emphasis on a particular doctrine that was just very clear before, but now there's been kind of a different way to uh, to handle that doctrine and to utilize it. Um, you don't have to be a cessationist to question when your leader often refers to their own personal revelations from God that they've received, that the, uh, they might um, have their own understanding and obedient response to, to that particular, instead of doing it out of response to the scriptures. Uh, to claim that God told you something uh, leaves people cautious to question. I mean, if someone comes to me and says, God told me that, uh, that you need to sell your blue BMW, which I recently did. I got a silver one. Uh, I'm going to say, how do I counter that? How do, and by the way, I love if that someone did say that. I'd say, yes, I'll take that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, but if, if, if a speaker has heard from God and he's telling you that and you've questioned it, uh, it is kind of manipulative because you're, you feel like if you counter him or question him, you're, you're questioning God. And I think people are really hesitant to do that. We, we give people the benefit of the doubt. We uh, give them grace. And as in the case of something that happened in our denomination some years ago, 
Um, in fact, it was the Toronto blessing back in the 90s. Many people in our denomination said, well, let's just kind of see where it goes. Let's observe to see whether it's legitimate or not. Well, I think it ought to be viewed as legitimate or not based on the theology, the foundation, not the outcome, not the fruits, because if the, if the, if the root's bad, the fruit's going to be bad. Um, so a reliance on prophetic voices um, also makes room, and this is where I'm nervous. Maybe I'm being prophetic here, uh, no pun intended. Uh, but it makes room for a, a movement to make changes in their practice and their beliefs because, I mean, imagine, for example, that a, a governing board in a church or a managing board for a denomination is struggling over a particular issue. Um, and they pray together. And the, the, all of this is noble. It's good. But they, they've prayed for a month. They fasted. And when they get back together, uh, they all collectively agree that God has decide, God has revealed to them that, uh, you know, I know the big thing in our movement is whether women should be in pastoral ministry or not. I mean, that's going to come. That's, that's going to be that issue. And I'm not going to speak to that issue. I got my own views on it. But that issue is a departure from what has been traditionally held as a scriptural view. If it's going to change is because people have assembled together and they've heard from God, and they sense that this is the season to make that change. Uh, they collectively, collectively agree that God has spoken to them and has directed them to make this, this radical or maybe benign change, whatever it might be. Uh, even though uh, Scripture might historically have been viewed as being very clear on, on this particular matter. Um, it, it's placed aside. This is another common thing. Uh, we, we hear about a fresh word from God. We want... We want people to get a fresh move from God, to experience God in, in a new way. And someone will emerge and give us the, uh, the testimony of how that's done and, and the means and the methods, the techniques that can be used. And in time, uh, this kind of prophetic reliance will provide uh, churches necessary wiggle room to consider other changes, uh, such as how to accommodate same-sex relationships into their community. So do you see what happens? It, it's, a, it's a drift. It's a slippery slope. Uh, I think it's, it's a warning of what can happen when we suspend God's word for fresh words from God. Uh, it, what it allows for is a change of beliefs on certain issues, which will lead to different practices. It, it can be dangerous, and I'm not saying uh, there isn't room for that to seek God's will in a particular matter. But I think you understand what I mean when it's a departure from something, when it's been historically agreed is, is from God's word, it's agreed on, but now it's a new season, let's reconsider it. I don't, I don't want to take the time to lay out my biblical response too much to why I worry about this, except to say this, Ephesians 2, 19 through 20 tells us this, that we are fellow citizens with God's people and we are members of his household. And here it is, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Uh, it, it is powerful and sufficient to me that what we have in scripture is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and therefore sufficient for rule and practice today. In fact, the Great Commission, uh, the motivation of the Great Commission, go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then what? Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Um, I remember in my ordination exam, I had to defend this position that if I were then to argue uh, for the need and reliance of direct words from God, I would have been challenged by my mentors. Let, let me rephrase that. I think that might have been a little confusing. But if I had argued, tried to argue back then that um, we should be looking for direct words from God, that we can uh, receive a prophetic word from God. Back then, 34 years ago, I really would have been challenged by my mentors. It just was not uh, assumed that that's the way God spoke. It was, uh, it was through scripture. And, and we would point to Hebrews 4.12, God's word is living, active, sharpened, double-edged sword. Uh, it's, it penetrates and divides. And we know 2 Timothy 3.16 um, that all uh, scripture is, is breathed by God. It's profitable for rebuke, for a reproof, except the passage we looked at earlier. Uh, yet today, um, movements have allowed for more. And uh, by the way, pastor, um, church leader, uh, maybe I'm harping on something here that might not seem that significant to you. Beware of how it sounds to your people when you urge them to want more from God. 
uh, urging them to have deeper experiences with God. Or a common thing is to have deeper intimacy with God. Uh, because doing so, it's how I hear it when I'm hearing that all the time, causes me, causes your people to question the adequacy of their faith. Faith has an object. We have faith in the Word of God. We have faith in Scripture. And, um, and I know there are movements that exist. There are so many ministries that exist that uh, promote this. And, um, and I'll be talking about one of them in, in just a few moments. Um, but it, remember again, Ephesians 2, we're all members of the household of God. And there's only one hero in our story, and that is Jesus. And he has done everything that we need. We, we have more in him. We have the most in him. Uh, I love the phrase in the hymn, it is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. So whenever I hear the pastor or someone praying, Lord, give us more of yourself or that we should seek more, uh, I play that line in my head because that, by the way, pastor, it's playing with my mind. It's, it's messing me up when you say that, uh, that I should want more. I think it is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Um, and, and the rest of us, again, back to the, we're one household of God, um, in Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter two, um, we have one thing in common and it puts us all on the same level. And that is that we are forgiven sinners. And when we make room and urge people to go deeper and go higher, we're creating a restlessness and unsettledness. And it also creates an elitism, a higher level of spirituality that some people have. And we look at them longingly. We, we envy them and, and we long for that, and we have a sense of an inadequate faith. And, um, and I'm not out to argue necessarily whether or not there should be prophetic messages um, or genuine experiences that people have, but, but I'm trying to make a larger point here because I've had moments where God has just tugged in my heart. It's been emotional, and you know I've surrendered more of, of myself and made deeper commitments. I'm not trying to, I'm trying to make a larger point here. Let's trust the scripture uh, God has given us also amazing minds to discern truth. Uh, he's given us an appetite to know him and a hunger to understand his will and his purpose. And I would say everything we want answers for or need answers for can be found as we put those minds to use and study the scripture and, and put it into practice and seek to be obedient and, and study deeply the truths of the scripture. Um, I, I hear often today, this is a new thing. We'll hear people say that we're supposed to, re, quoting, uh, I think John 4, when Jesus talks to the woman at the well, that uh, one day they'll be worshiping in spirit and in truth. Um, I'm hearing that dis, a distinction there, that we're to worship God, A, in spirit, B, in truth, that there's, there's okay, B, truth, scripture, but then there's this other thing, other thing you can do, and that's spirit. And I think that I, I really believe that Jesus was talking about the same thing in spirit and truth. It's the, uh, the, the there is the spirit, and the, the, there is the spirit given to us to understand truth. Um, John 14 through 17, how often does Jesus talk about the Holy Spirit uh, being given to us to bring to mind the things that he's taught us, to reveal to us the scripture, to convict of righteousness and, and sin, and to convict the world in our own hearts? Uh, spirit and truth are two sides of the same coin. The Spirit's given to us not to reveal new things, but old things that Jesus taught. And they're good things. We, we want to hear those things over and over again. Tell me the old, old story, as an old hymn used to say. And, uh, and those truths are not just sufficient. They're life-changing and they're promises that are real today as they were back then when he uttered them. Uh, so how do we get back to gospel preaching? By coming back to the authoritative word of God, uh, where the pastor is preaching the word, word for word, truth by truth. Okay, another swig of water and we'll keep talking. I don't have too much to say here. A few more minutes. Um, the nice thing about podcasts actually is you can pause and come back to it. Uh, so I don't mind my podcast being long. Um, there's a second movement that's, that's making widespread progress through the church. Um, it's also making widespread progress into our Christian institution. And I believe it's becoming the latest thing that's exciting many Christians. Uh, because again, what's my premise? If the gospel is not being preached, we're restless. When we're restless, we're prone to need something and we gravitate to, uh, to error. And, and I believe this one is, is suspect to me. Um, and I'm trying to learn it. I'm reading a lot about it, listening to people. I've got some good friends that are into this and we're having good dialogues. It's not affecting our friendships, but 
their hard their hard conversations, and uh, and I also believe it happens when uh, again uh, when the scriptures no longer becomes the place to meet God and to enjoy Him and glorify Him as the old catechism puts it. Um, it diminishes the importance of scripture in your life and. And you need to go on some journey to find God. And that place is conveniently called, and this is what the second category is, contemplative prayer movement, uh, or the spiritual journey, as it's often ca- called, or spiritual life. Um, it, it's in this prayer movement that the, uh, it places the attention of God within us, not over us as sovereign king, as righteous, as holy. It's not so much looking to him on his throne and and our prayer journey and discipline is, is in a sense, up in worship to God as the incense was in the temple. Uh, instead, he becomes a pal uh, that is with you, that you can have a great interaction with. Uh, God is a, a friend that you're on a journey of discovering more of him. Um, and in, in short, contemplative prayer calls for disciplines that help you look within yourself. And when you go deep enough, guess what? You meet God. That, that's in essence, as I understand it, the, uh, the purpose and the outcome of uh, a contemplative prayer. Um, I had concerns recently about a book. I'm, I'm in some collaborative uh, uh, effort with a friend um, in helping pastors develop personal health and, and, and to have inner uh, soul care, inner care. And, um, and this book was called Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership by Ruth Har- uh, Haley Barton. And uh, I thought about buying the book, but I'm Dutch and it just costs a little bit too much. So I, I've been doing this a lot. In fact, I would encourage you, it's, it's, it's not a cop out. I just think when you're reading a lot of books, it's hard to, to get more books. So I decided to look on YouTube and um, I like to bike around the, uh, the area where we live here. And so on three or four different bike rides on three different days, three or four different days, I listened to a number of her lectures and um, I, I'll be honest with you, I, I, I had a hard time stomaching what I was hearing. It was, it was different. Uh, again, it was a new teaching. It was, it, was, it was odd to me. It was not familiar to me. Um, but I, needed, I know I needed a full picture of what this teaching is, so I kept listening. And on my second ride, listening to probably the third lecture, <laughs> I scared a woman walking her dog when I screamed out, no, 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 this is just wrong. And the poor woman... Uh, gave me an understandably strange look as I just kept writing. And, um, and I didn't dare turn around and explain to her for fear that the book she was reading might be the book that I was critiquing. That, that's not necessarily true. But um, anyway, but I could sum up her teaching. And again, she's a guru in the whole contemplative movement. A uh, number of people are. Uh, again, it's looking to certain people who seem to have uh, a new idea and a, and a fresh teaching. Uh, but, but if you were to sum up this, the, this movement is this, if you truly want to meet God, if you really want intimacy, intimacy with God, well, here are some tools and disciplines you can take on your journey. And it's a journey deep into yourself. And in time, you'll find your deepest desires. And when you, dis, when you tap in your deepest desires, that's when you will be in the presence of God. And um, again, I almost crashed my bike several times as I heard these themes continuously being, being repeated in, in her talks. Uh, so you meet God by tapping your inner desires, your innermost desires. Well, last time I checked, and this is explained in the, authority, the authoritative word of God, what lays deep in me is a simple, sinful, depraved heart that I would never trust. Uh, according to Jeremiah 17, 29, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? And there are many other passages in scripture that talk about the state of the heart and how dangerous it is to look within yourself and somehow through quiet and rhythms and breathing techniques and, and uh, to, lecto divina is a technique of taking a word, extracting it, a word from scripture and and having these different uh, methods that you use to draw out the meaning. But if you look at Romans 3, Romans 4, Ephesians 2, many other passages talk about what you'll find when you take a deep dive into your heart. Uh, Nothing but rottenness. And even as as believers, our hearts cannot be trusted. Uh, Yet we're we're being coached by many within our church, by leaders, and even now by pastors through their sermons, uh, that here are some disciplines that are wonderful techniques and rhythms that you can help in your journey. 
And uh, so you have things like centering prayer, lis- lis- uh, listening prayer, lecto- lectio divina, and um, and other things. Um, uh, and more. These are becoming calling cards to draw people into this subtly dangerous exercise. So I would say be very careful if you are taught something that you've never heard of before. And I mean that. If you hear a pastor teaching, a author teaching, a speaker teaching, it's like I never heard that before, but it sounds so cool. It's it sounds so attractive question it. That's what I'm saying here. It's uh, like one guy says, don't, don't listen to me. Uh, listen to me with a closed mind, but uh, listen to me with an open Bible. And what, confer- what concerns me further is this, that these practices are not taught in scripture. So the, <clears throat> excuse me, so the leaders of these movements by necessity have to go to ancient mystics, early church fathers to justify it. And while the scripture is used as a tool, finding God reflecting on his purposes um, are in this way are not found there. Uh, they are discovered in the subjective personal experience, usually deep in the quietness of your soul. And one doesn't have to question long to see that these practices are eerily similar to Eastern mysticism. Uh, contempt, contemplative prayer, and I know I'm not doing a deep dive into these things. I'm give, giving kind of a cursory overview of it. Um, but contemplative prayer also falls under a broader category of spiritual formation. And again, it's becoming mainstream in the evangelical church. Um, it's required uh, source, it's required uh, electives or required classes in a lot of Christian in- institution. Um, and I think spiritual formation has subst- taken the place of sanctification. It's become the neo-sanctification. Um, it's much more about what you do. Again, you're the hero of the story. It's what you can do to acquire these things, to develop this peace and rest in your life. It's not, sanctification is really all about the work of Christ on the cross, the Holy Spirit taking that and the imputed righteousness of Christ brought into your life, bringing transportation through repentance. Big difference. And uh, again, in our denomination, uh, and if I can be at anybody's listening to this, uh, and district leaders, national leaders are being trained as coaches to train pastors in these disciplines. And these pastors are expected to pass this on to their congregation. Uh, let me remind you again that the word of God, the scriptures is sufficient in everything. And we don't need more. If anything, we just need to rehearse the old story. I think a lot about the practices of uh, the Old Testament Jew uh, they would meet together on Passover, their other festivals, and particularly in Passover, the father would just repeat the story. Uh, you look at Stephen's sermon, Peter's sermon. What does what does he do? He just simply tells the story of Judea, of Judaism, of of uh, the history of of uh, of the Exodus and uh, the meaning of the Passover. and And so, there's there's to me the most refreshing thing is not something new; it's hearing that good old story again. Because uh, it's it's sufficient. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Uh, we don't need to go anywhere else to meet with God and to discover his will and his purpose for our lives. Um, <clears throat> okay, a third movement is I grab my fourth sip of water. And um, this is one that's, that's, I think, creeping into a lot of churches, movements, uh, denominations, ministries. Um, it's filling the big tent with an errant air, I think. It's, and that is the conviction that the church exists to make the world around it a better place. And most recently, this has taken, you've seen this in our response to social justice, that you know, the church needs to address these. And again, y- yes, in many ways, and this, this is, you're probably not gonna be satisfied with this fourth, third point because I'm not going deep in it at all. In fact, I'm just trying to get more familiar with what the church's role is to justice and so forth. But, um, but, but before this, the church has always been heavily committed to, um, to the plight of the lost, uh, the lostness of people spiritually. And I, I grew up with that. I was compelled into missions. Well, I'll get, I'll get back to that in just a little bit. But what, what we're seeing a lot today is a heavy commitment to relieve the plight of the poor, the hurting around us. Again, I'm so careful in saying this because this is necessary. This is the gospel. Uh, but only as long as they, they, this doesn't become our Great Commission. What is the Great Commission? The Great Commission is the marching order of the church. It's our mission. It's our calling. It's according to Jesus, and, and we tend to think of Matthew 28, 19 through 20. But Luke 24, 47 uh, really uh, puts a tighter circle around what the Great Commission is. 
where Jesus says, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. If you take what Matthew, 18, Matthew 29, uh, 19 says and teach them everything that I commanded you, that's answered here. What is he commanded? To preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and that should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So the making of disciples in Matthew 28, I said Matthew 29 earlier, talks about is to make disciples into this, into this piece right here. How are disciples made? Through repentance, forgiveness of sins, and then the, 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 the teaching of what that is all about. That's discipleship. Um, so social issues that have diminished the power of that message and the burden of the lost uh, spiritually is something that we need to be careful uh, about. Um, I, I attend a church where uh, dozens of missionaries visit. They share with us during you know festival, mission festival or whatever. And um, I also live near a Christian college where students will do um, cross-cultural or intercultural ministry students will, be, will do an oversee mission internship. They'll come back and they'll share their experiences in the church. And what I'm hearing more and more from missionaries and students has been a consistent theme. And that is that people in these countries are suffering and they need help. And students, when they sit on a platform and they're interviewed by the youth pastor or whatever, uh, they'll naively claim that these people, despite their poverty, are the happiest people in the world. And I'm like, well, then why do they need the gospel if they're so happy? And, um, and mission, and these, we need to hear what missionaries are doing. Uh, many of them will share reports of um, the offerings that they do to connect with people in these cultures, English classes, camps, um, micro-business, teaching people to be self-sufficient. And uh, students will talk about how much they learn from their uh, six weeks that they spent and how helpful it was to learn more about the culture and the religion. And uh, one time I heard a gal talk about how wonderful the Muslims were. They're so kind and so generous. Uh, again, I'm not going to argue about any of these things, but what I'm listening for from a missionary and from students that have been there is what did the lostness of people do to you? What are you doing uh, to address that spiritual plight, the eternal lostness of people that without Christ, they're under God's wrath and they'll be punished eternally. Um, what, what is the work that's being done that addresses that? Uh, I'm sure there are kind people and happy people everywhere. That's not my point. Uh, but what I'm not hearing is the very thing that compelled me into ministry uh, and even, even to do that overseas for a season until we had to come back for medical reasons. And that is how desperately lost people are without Jesus, how they will go to hell unless they repent and turn to God. And, and having seen that firsthand, um, when we see that lostness, we're gutted by it. And, and in the conviction that the only way to address that is the gospel, is telling the story of what Jesus did. Um, several years ago, I, I interviewed four students who were preparing to be overseas workers. And I asked them how often they would talk amongst themselves about hell and the lostness of people. And, uh, and during the interview, I tried to raise this issue, but no one was interested. And then afterwards, I asked them, I said, you guys talk about this thing? And they said, no, we don't. We don't talk about uh, the plight of, of man's uh, spiritual destiny. And um, so it was a little opportunity to interact about that. Um, but they're more interested or excited about planting sustainable gardens, teaching English as a second language or leading sewing classes. And, and I, I get this. And again, I told you I use hyperbole because I know many missionaries who do these things as a means to share the gospel. So I know it's being done, but I'm just trying to caution us that that doesn't become uh, the end, uh, but only a means. Um, I took a missionary back to the airport last year. And he shared with me, I asked him about the success of his work, what was encouraging him. And it had nothing to do with people who came to faith in Christ following the devastating realization that they were in their sins lost and heading to hell. And, uh, oh my goodness, you know, this, they've met the Savior and they understood that they've been forgiven, that a trade took place at the cross. Uh, you know, I gave him my sin, he gave me his righteousness. And my, friend, my friend's ministry was this, to ask unbelievers, lost people, if they could be prayed for. And so they would, they would set up teams and approach people or provide online services where people can call in to pray for them. And their response was amazing. People cried. Some were 
curative depression. Some were even healed in, in the testimony of my friend. Other felt a burning in their body and it felt great. And I, I asked my friend at what point then is the gospel presented? And he says, well, you know, that, you know, th that part where you say we're sinners, we need a savior and that savior is Jesus and how the cross of trade took place. Um, and my friend answered that with something like this. Oh, well, we, we, if they ask about that, we will share, uh, um, you know, if that opportunity comes. And, um, and I wonder when we report decisions for Christ, what do we mean by that? Is it someone was willing to be prayed for and they felt great about it and were encouraged by it? Or is it because people uh, literally, as John 424 says, they crossed from death to life? Um, most recently, our denominations felt compelled to respond to racism, social justice, again, needed stuff. Uh, and the response from what I observed has been, it, I, 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 or I've been wondering how much is being driven by the gospel. Um, we've, we have not used the opportunity uh, to call people to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Or I should say, are we asking, using that opportunity? Again, I don't know because I've not seen what people are doing. I'm just raising the questions. Um, are, you know, or are we simply responding to this pop popular demand to apologize for our insensitivity, our unconscious bias, or white privilege? Um, but I, I fear, and this is my point, that we lose an opportunity to remind people and remind ourselves and the world around us that injustice exists because man is sinful and how that justice was carried out when Christ took on himself the wrath of God and how now God extends mercy to those who look to the cross for their salvation. And um, I was even told by, by an African-American leader that uh, this is not the time to preach the gospel. Well, I think this is the time. <laughs> but he said this is the time for the church to show empathy to the culture, solidarity, and, um, and to seek its, um, um, and, and, to, and to do it by righting the wrong around us, by our, by our love, by our display, our love. Let's remember that there will be injustice in our world until Christ returns. And when he returns, he will set up his perfect kingdom. That's when there will be final social justice. Until then, let's call people to repentance for the forgiveness of sins so they can be assured a place in that kingdom. Uh, the gospel is not about showing solidarity, empathy. Sometimes it'll do the opposites. It'll divide. Uh, it warns people that if they remain in their sins, they will die in their sins. Uh, will society get better around us when that happens? Probably in some places, but not in all. Uh, history shows that when the gospel is preached, some will respond against it harshly. We're seeing that today. Uh, and there will be greater injustice when God is hated. And, uh, and I think, again, we're seeing that happen around us. Uh, it saddens me, even in my own movement, how little I hear about the lostness of people um, I, I feel like an old fogey saying, it used to be like this in the old days, but uh, again, it's, it's my burden. Um, but I, I don't hear much about the lostness of people and the promise of a future where there will never be injustice again. Uh, that's what gives people hope. And, and I wonder if we've bent so far to be like the world that we've lost our voice. Uh, have we bent so far to be like the world or to to empathize with the world that we've, we're losing our voice. So what, is this, what, what do we do with this in closing? How do we reclaim what has been lost? Um, on one hand, I'm not very hopeful because I do see, um, I do see being, um, you know, what Paul prophesied to Timothy being fulfilled that in the last days, teachers will rise to uh, teach what itching ears want to hear. Um, and, and this will happen at some point in time. And I wonder if it's happening right now. And again, if it is happening, it's so close to us, you're hardly going to notice it. You notice it if you're committed to the gospel, your people will notice it if they're hearing regularly the law and the gospel. And, uh, and I would see, I'd love to see movements, repent, return to early commitment and conviction to the word of God, to the gospel of Jesus and I believe more likely there will be churches and groups that will leave to continue that legacy. I hope so. Um, not sure what I'm envisioning there, <laughs> but I sure hope so. Um, at this point, because um, you know these deceptions are so saturated and sometimes in leadership that the only response is gonna have to happen on the grassroots. Um, you know, a local church may be saying, we can't continue like this, we need to, remove ourselves uh, since challenging is not making a difference. I don't know. 
Um, so if you're a pastor and you still care about the gospel, if you're a church leader, if you love the church, let me urge you with three things. Uh, stop playing with the word. Um, the word is authoritative. It has everything we need. Uh, stop looking for God in us. Yes, he indwells us, but he's found in his word. Uh, and he's, he's looked to by reading the word and by worshiping, celebrating uh, what he's revealed of himself and what he's done for us. And get back to the only hope for the loss, and that is the message of this, the saving message of Jesus. Um, so anyway, that has been my musing today, and I trust that um, it's not too hard. Um, I don't know how what the reaction will be to this, but it's just been where my heart has been recently. Love to talk with you. I want this to be a conversation uh, don't get mad, harsh. Uh, let's just talk. And you can email me at mitch at beforeyouquit.us if you want to dialogue about this. Uh, but I love the church. I love the pastor. I love the word of God. God bless you.